This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. When Tesla's CEO, Elon Musk, the second richest man in the world, hosted Saturday Night Live in May, he made fun of his controversial tweets and revealed being diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome. Look, I know I sometimes say or post strange things, but that's just how my brain works. To anyone I've offended, I just want to say I reinvented electric cars and I'm sending people to Mars in a rocket ship. Did you think I was also going to be a chill, normal dude? Musk starred in another kind of performance this week in a Delaware courtroom where he was not as self-deprecating or revealing. He's being sued by shareholders over Tesla's controversial 2016 takeover of Solar City. Joining me is Chris Domesh, Bloomberg legal reporter, who was in the courtroom for his testimony. Was he the star witness, not only due to his celebrity, but also the most important witness? Oh, yes. He was definitely the most important and central witness in the case. You know, he spent about eight hours on the stand. It was highly entertaining and engaging, especially at the beginning. His own lawyer started and kind of led him through his career history. So you got a whole history of Tesla and Solar City in a crash course. If you didn't know anything about it and you just sat in from the public, you would have learned a whole lot about Elon Musk and Tesla. Um, it was quite entertaining. He definitely got some chuckles in the courtroom. He had some supporters in the courtroom for sure. And he said he thinks he's funny. So that definitely brought a laugh out or two. So, Chris, tell us about the lawsuit and the allegations of the plaintiffs. A group of plaintiffs who were shareholders, and they alleged basically that Musk kind of drove this deal. You know, he controls both companies, and the allegations are that he basically used this position to kind of push this acquisition through without going through the proper corporate governance channels. How did Musk do on cross-examination, and what was the shareholder's lawyer, Randy Barron, trying to get him to admit So he was repeatedly trying to get Musk to admit that he controlled Tesla. Whatever he said goes, that nobody was going to oppose him, that the board was kind of there to rubber stamp what he was doing. Um, In normal acquisition procedures, the board is supposed to conduct an independent investigation of whether the acquisition makes sense and if the price makes sense. And Musk is supposed to not really be involved. But Randy was trying to show that he was quite involved, talking to bankers, talking to lawyers, checking in daily about the progress of the merger. So that's really where he was trying to get at. Musk, he was combative, but he was calm most of the time. He sparred with the lawyer quite a bit, and he called him a bad human being. It was quite a matchup. But he continually repeated what was kind of a mantra about how he had a plan for Tesla that included solar from the beginning. And this acquisition made perfect sense and just fit with what they were doing with building a solar roof and a battery that could store solar power. So you said that Musk kept cool, but he also said that his questions were deceptive. Your questions are so deceptive, it's silly. What was his attitude toward Barron? Was it sort of dismissive? Yeah, that's exactly the right word to use. He was dismissive. He said this line of questioning was, like you said, you know, it's silly, deceptive. You know, you're just trying to craft a narrative. He said, I think you're trying to conjure the notion of a conspiracy at one point. There's some eye rolls. Um, There's definitely some shaking of the head. But he was pretty much a calm customer. The public perception is that Musk is Tesla and that Tesla wouldn't survive without Musk. Did he deny that? 
He said he controls 20% of the company and that rest of the company, you know, the other shareholders are free to invest and buy and sell their shares and that the directors are independent. He brushed off the notion that he was solely in control of the company. He said he doesn't even really want to be CEO. He just does it because he feels like Tesla would die without him. He said that many times that he enjoys designing things and doing engineering. It was interesting to hear him say that so frankly. So then who won this matchup on cross-examination? There was no technical knockout here. I would say there was definitely a lot of body blows landed on Musk. But like I said, he pretty much repeated his mantra that from the beginning of Tesla's existence, he had planned for it to be a sustainable energy company, not just an electric car company. And that the logical progression of that would have been to acquire a solar company. He pointed to his master plan for the company from 2006, where he said that mentioned solar technology. And he said that even though you know he had family ties to the company, it just made sense as an acquisition. Barron was trying to show that you know Solar City was going in decline; it needed a bailout. You know, showing how its megawatts had declined the ones deployed over time. But Musk pushed back on that and said, you know, part of that was due to the pandemic, that they hadn't been able to secure permits for solar panels due to the pandemic, and that they'd been on the rise lately. You know, he was frank. He was funny. He was entertaining. And, you know, he showed his disdain for lawyers, for sure. So now the judge asked Musk a series of questions. What was he getting at? So the judge seemed to want to get to the heart of what, like I said, Musk kept repeating about this being solar from the beginning. He wanted to know, well, was this really a part of the plan? Was this acquisition a part of the plan? Or was that just kind of a general idea? He wanted to know why the power wall, which is the battery storage that they have, um, needed to have a solar capacity in order to be a sustainable product. Thanks, Chris. That's Bloomberg legal reporter Chris Dolmesh. Musk is the only defendant in the lawsuit the rest of the board settled last year. So if he loses, Musk could be ordered to dig into his own pocket to hand back the roughly $2 billion that Tesla shelled out for Solar City. Companies in a variety of industries require workers to sign non-competes. President Joe Biden says that hurts workers and stifles competition. Biden is calling on the FTC to ban or limit employee non-competes as part of an executive order issued on July 9th aimed at improving competition within the economy. Biden is calling on the FTC to ban or limit employee non-competes as part of a broad executive order issued on July 9th aimed at improving competition within the economy. Joining me is Evan Starr, a professor at the University of Maryland. Tell us about non-competes. What's a non-compete and what are the pur- what's the purpose? Well, a non-compete agreement is a clause that appears in individual employment contracts that prohibits the worker from leaving and starting or joining a competing firm, often within a uh, specific time frame, um, one or two years or so, and within a typical geographic uh, area, which could be a few miles from the place of work, or it could be even the state or the U.S. or even the world. The common rationale for non-compete agreements is that they are used to protect trade secrets and confidential information that the firm uses and that the worker could appropriate for themselves if they were to go join a competitor and and put their firm at a disadvantage. And so, you know, just colloquially, if I have a a trade secret and I'd like to give it to you, I might be worried that you would take it across the street and then use it against me. So as a result, without an off-compete agreement, I wouldn't have any incentives 
to invest in the creation of that trade secret or share it with you in the first place. And so the non-compete solves that problem, allowing the firm to comfortably invest in the creation and development of those trade secrets. Non-competes are used even for manual laborers, for low-wage earners? Non-compete agreements will be found in every corner of the U.S. workforce. For low-wage workers, for interns, for volunteers, certainly at the high levels of executives, high-tech workers. In one study, we found that among a nationally representative sample of workers, we found that actually hourly workers are the modal non-compete signers, not even salaried workers. And that's because hourly workers make up about two-thirds of the workforce. And even though they sign non-competes at lower rates, there's so many of them that they account for the majority of non-compete signers. This is a broad order. What is Biden asking the FTC to do? Well, I think President Biden is concerned, and he has been since 2016, when it came to light that non-compete agreements were being used in jobs where there seemed to be little merit for them. And that includes low-wage workers. That includes workers who are even volunteers. So there was a recognition at that time that these have spread quite broadly. And the empirical research since that time has bolstered some of these concerns. We've seen, for example, that 30% of firms use non-competes up and down the organization without any discretion for the type of job or the access to information that a particular worker has. And in that situation, you're going to have janitors signing non-competes. You're going to have secretaries. You're going to have minimum wage workers. At the same time, we've had several studies that have shown that when states limit or ban non-compete agreements, that workers benefit. For example, Hawaii banned non-compete agreements for high-tech workers in 2015, and a study of that ban found that after non-competes were banned for high-tech workers, high-tech workers in Hawaii had higher wages, and they increased their job mobility by about 11%. A similar study looked at a ban on low-wage workers in Oregon in 2008 and found similar results, that after Oregon banned non-compete agreements, that job-to-job mobility rose by about 17%, and that wages rose by up to 5% after six years. I think there's another important point, too, which is that non-compete agreements are not just restraints on trade in the labor market. They don't just prohibit workers from leaving firm A and joining firm B. They also prohibit workers from starting new firms. And so if a a non-compete agreement is going to reduce entrepreneurship, then you've also got concerns that non-competes could increase concentration, that they could increase prices consumers pay, and that they could reduce innovation because new firms are often the way that innovation gets spurred. Has anything like this, any order like this, been done before on the federal level? This is the first federal action on non-compete agreements where it seems like there will be significant progress. There has been a bill since about 2015 and in recent years in the Congress that has sought to ban non-competes first for low-wage workers and now for most workers. This is a bill co-sponsored by Chris Murphy and Todd Young, which is a bipartisan bill to ban most non-compete agreements. That's been the first activity at the federal level. But that bill has not moved anywhere. And so this will be, I think, the first broad approach directed from a president that we've ever seen. So it's a first. It seems likely then that there are going to be legal challenges to it. There could be. I think it depends on how broad of a scope the FTC wishes to pursue. I can imagine that there are several uncontroversial elements that the FTC could incorporate. For example, a ban on non-compete agreements for low-wage workers is a largely uncontroversial opinion. Exactly what a low-wage worker is, however, is up to debate. In Washington state, for example, they passed a ban for workers earning less than $100,000. And in other states, they've limited it to workers making $13 an hour, $15 an hour. 
And so there's quite a wide range of what low-wage workers are considered. I think another uncontroversial piece is that oftentimes workers can agree to non-compete agreements on the first day of the job, sometimes clicking through their employment contract on the computer. And in that situation, a worker may have not have known before they joined the company that they were going to be asked to sign a non-compete agreement. And on that first day, they don't have a chance to negotiate or reconsider their terms. Maybe they've already moved their family. And so most workers just click and sign that agreement and suffer the consequences down the road. And so the FTC in, in many states, I imagine, will consider requiring early notice of non-compete agreements. In the executive order, is there any guidance about what the FTC should be addressing? I think the guidance to the FTC is pretty vague and broad at this point. The FTC will get to determine the scope of the rule that they want to create. I imagine that if they come up with a policy like ban non-compete agreements for most workers or all workers, that that would invite legal challenges from states. Non-competes have, of course, been regulated by states for over 200 years in the U.S. There's no real reason for that. The Sherman Antitrust Act governs contracts and restraint of trade. And non-compete agreements are restraints of trade by definition. They're preventing workers from working for another employer. And so the federal government could have regulated non-compete agreements under the antitrust laws that we currently have. And for whatever reason, they have not chosen to do so. And so I think that there is some ground for them to regulate non-compete agreements, though I imagine because of the history that some states may be unhappy and may challenge those laws. As you say, it's an area that's traditionally been the domain of states. What kinds of restrictions have states had? Yeah, so historically, there have been three states that do not enforce non-compete agreements, and those policies were adopted a long time ago. For example, California's policy on non-competes was that they would be unenforceable uh, and unlawful, and that policy was adopted in 1872. If you fast forward to today, what we see is that uh, some states like Florida will enforce a non-compete agreement even if the worker was fired from the job. And when the court is considering whether to enforce that non-compete, they won't even consider the hardship done to the worker. And that's directly in their statute. In contrast, you have areas like D.C. who passed probably the most expansive law recently, which was to ban non-competes for almost all workers and to institute penalties for firms that are caught using non-competes that are now deemed illegal. And this is really important because if you look at some of the recent research, what we find is that Firms in California are still using non-competes at similar rates to other states. California's policy on non-compete agreements has, has not deterred firms from using them with their workers. And so one of the, the goals of, a, of these bills is to actually reduce the use of non-compete agreements and get them out of workers' contracts. And that's because when a worker signs an agreement like this, they tend to believe that when they put their signature on a contract, that the court would uphold that contract. And as a result, workers tend to obey these non-compete agreements, and they're susceptible to threats by the firm when the firm reminds them of their obligations that they've agreed to. And so even in California and in places that would not sanction a non-compete agreement, the non-competes can still chill workers, and in some cases that chill them to a similar degree as in states that would actually enforce those agreements. Do employers, do companies often go after manual laborers, low-wage earners in court over a non-compete? Certainly they do. There was a case a few years ago about a janitorial worker who was making $18 an hour who had a non-compete that was thought to be enforced against her. And the only reason that case was dropped was because of the public outcry when it, uh, that occurred when it became public. Over time, what we've seen is that what we've learned is that most firms don't enforce these in court. There's only about a thousand or so non-compete decisions every year. But what ends up happening is that firms have policies in place that can basically remind workers of their obligations, send them threatening letters. 
And that's 90% of the time, or more, that's how non-competes are effectively enforced outside of the courtroom. What do employees have to prove in court in order to enforce a non-compete clause? When a firm sues a worker for violating the non-compete, first the worker has to go and join a competitor. Right, That's the key violation. But once that's been established, then it has to be shown that the firm has some legitimate business interest that the non-compete is actually protecting. That includes trade secrets, client lists typically. And then the the firm also has to argue that the non-compete is a reasonable uh, restriction on trade, that the geographic and time limits are reasonable, and that they're trying to protect these legitimate business interests through other means as well. So that's the kind of standard reasonableness test. And then the court the court is going to weigh, you know, the, the firm's need to protect these business interests against the harm done to the worker and the harm done to the public interest. So it sounds like it's a tough standard to meet to enforce a non-compete. Again, it depends on where you are. Uh, in Florida, as I said, you know the, the courts are instructed there not even to consider hardship done to the worker. I, I think that, again, in, in most cases, these operate mostly outside of the courtroom. But in the case where it does go to court, you're often seeing high-level executives and such who clearly have access to valuable information. And my sense is that in those cases, you have negotiated contracts, and courts are much more willing to enforce those contracts generally. So as someone who studied this, do you think that this is a good idea, what Biden is proposing for the FTC? I think that there's important value in federal uh, non-compete regulation. And the, the policies that we've seen being adopted at the state level has provided lots of great natural experiments that we've learned from. We've learned about some of the value that comes from banning or loosening restrictions on non-compete agreements from those, those state policy changes. But when you think about what's happening at the state level, we are developing into a situation where we now have so many different state policies that it can be increasingly difficult for firms to navigate each state's legal landscape and increasingly difficult for workers who are going to traverse across state lines to know which state's non-compete law applies. So imagine you're a firm that has offices in many states and you'd like to use non-compete agreements. If every state has their own policies, it can be really difficult to write enforceable non-compete agreements for all of those workers. Similarly, if you have a worker who's working in, let's say, Florida, but they want to move to California, which state law should apply in that instance when their policies are so disparate? And so I think there is value from the federal government in establishing a common standard that can really reduce uncertainty for both workers and firms. And I think it's important to highlight that we're not just talking about workers who might benefit in terms of increased mobility, but firms also benefit as well, because a worker who is now able to take a job means a firm was able to hire. And this is, I think, one of the really important points to mention, which is that this is not a pro-worker, anti-firm issue, because firms are on both sides of the coin here. Of course, firms wouldn't want to lose a worker to their competitor, but they would like to be able to hire experienced, knowledgeable workers from their competitors. And so in court, sometimes you see this, where a firm will be arguing that a non-compete for their worker should be enforced. But when they're trying to hire, even if it's the exact same non-compete for a worker in a very similar position, they'll switch sides and argue that it should not be enforced because they would like to hire. And so it's important to realize that this is not a pro-worker or anti-firm issue. This is a worker and firm issue where when workers can sort to their best jobs, then firms can get the best workers. It sounds also like a campaign to inform might be helpful because a lot of workers don't realize what they're signing and don't realize once they leave what the firm can or can't do. I think an information campaign can be helpful, especially when the default presumption is that contracts you sign are enforceable. I think education can go a ways. But I I think the more important point is to say 
that uh, is to provide incentives for firms to not use non-compete agreements in the first place. If the goal of the, the policy is to prevent firms from using non-competes, then there needs to be some sort of disincentive for firms to use them. And I'll just mention a few that are, that are common here. One is uh, direct penalties, that if a firm is caught using non-competes that are now deemed illegal, that they have to pay a fine, that workers can recover attorney's fees. Um, there is also what's known as uh, uh, garden leave, where firms will be required to pay workers during the, the prohibited period. Um, and finally, I think one really interesting effort is out of California, where non-competes, again, have been unenforceable since 1872. There's been a, um, a question put to the California State Bar, which is whether it is unethical for lawyers to write terms that they know or should know are illegal and unlawful under California state law. And under this approach, uh, it's possible that lawyers could potentially be sanctioned for, for writing unenforceable terms. What kind of provision do you think the FTC should try to put forward? An all-inclusive one or something that is not going to be objectionable to most companies or states? Well, coming from the angle of the research and what the research has shown, again, I think the big question is going to be how broad do you make a ban on non-compete agreements? Um, the the if you go for a really low wage, it's going to be larger than controversial. If you start moving it up towards even high-tech workers, executives, then I think there's going to be more pushback. And so what I want to highlight is that on the research front, you know, what we know is that high-tech workers can be negatively impacted by non-compete agreements just like low-wage workers can. So I think there is scope for, uh, for the ban to cover quite a wide swath of workers. In fact, there's a recent paper which argues that executives uh, even executives, the optimal ban, the optimal policy is close to a non-compete ban. Uh, and that's because, again, it, uh, it, it may be the case that firms have a little bit less protection um, because they won't be able to use non-competes, but it's going to allow workers to sort to their most productive job. And I think, uh, so there, there's that paper that establishes that. I think that there's one question, which is outstanding, but it's really important. It's that firms have other tools to use, which are more targeted to the, to the legitimate interests that they're trying to protect. For example, if you're trying to protect information, you can use a non-disclosure agreement. You can use trade secret laws. If you're trying to protect clients that you have invested in developing, you can use an agreement not to solicit those clients. Then you can use a training repayment agreement where a worker agrees uh, to repay a proportion of the initial outlay and their training expenditures if they leave too early. The non-compete is a very broad tool. It offers the firm a lot of protection, but it may not be protection that the firm really needs once you account for all those other tools that the firm already has. Thanks for being on the Bloomberg Law Show. That's Evan Starr of the University of Maryland. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And please tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Eastern right here on Bloomberg Radio.